This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Nostalgia for the 1980s is in the air, from Stranger Things to the relaunch of 80s franchises like Top Gun. The American entertainment industry cast the period as an age of simple things, clearer dichotomies, and less technology. Yet not always simple. The 1980s were the heyday of the Cold War. They were a decade of rapid social change, of deregulation and selfish consumption of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. They're also the decade when a new technology swept the world, setting the stage for our all-too-digital present. A lot has been written about the rise of video in the U.S., the format war, the impact it had on the entertainment industry or personal entertainment consumption habits, new business models. But the rise of video was not a uniquely American phenomenon, nor was the American experience normative. In fact, wherever the new technology arrived, from the U.S. to the Middle East to Eastern Europe, It reshaped social and business practices as well as government responses to it in ways that reflected the political and economic arrangements of each place. My guest today is Dr. Johnny Walker, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Arts at Northumbria University in the UK. Dr. Walker is a historian of film, media, and popular culture specializing in horror and exploitation cinema. He's the author of Contemporary British Horror Cinema, 2015, and editor of three other books, His latest monograph is Rewind, Replay, Britain and the Video Boom, 1972-1992, Edinburgh University Press, 2022. Professor Walker, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So tell us a bit about yourself and about the genesis of your project. What what got you interested in VHS tapes? Well, thank you for the question. Um, Well, it's a a long story and I'll endeavour to keep it brief, (laughs) Um, but I'm I mean, I've had an interest in in British popular culture and specifically horror horror cinema for a for a, for a long long time. And I did my PhD in at De Montfort University in the UK in around two thousand and nine to two thousand and thirteen, and that was a study about British horror cinema in the in the two thousands chiefly. And I discovered when doing that research that a lot of the filmmakers who were making scary films in Britain after the year 2000 um, a lot of them were, were were influenced by the by the VHS era of the 1980s um, where they as, as children consumed horror films which of course um, had a had an impact on on their lives and by the time that they grew up um, into adulthood and were able to make films for themselves a lot of them were choosing to make films that were heavily inspired by by the controversial horror films that were made, that that were made or, or rather that were circulated in Britain in the, in the 1980s and the more research that I did 
on that period, the more it became apparent that whereas a lot of the existing scholarships on on, on that early VHS era is focused um, chiefly on, on the US, there isn't a lot that addresses um, the, the British side of things beyond stuff that that is chiefly concerned with, for example, the the legal climate of the 1980s. There, were, there was nothing about uh, video shops themselves or the types of people who were running them or um, which, which companies were the first ones to embrace video and make and make a success of it. And I saw a gap and I just thought, well, that would make a good book. <laughs> and it did. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. So, um, so the entry of the videotape, as I saw at the beginning of your book in Britain, seems to be inextricably linked to the economic climate of the era, which was quite different from what was going on in, in the US. Can you tell us how things were for ordinary Brits at the time? when um yeah for sure yes for sure i mean the the economic climate in britain in the in in the late 70s and into the early 1980s was was pretty catastrophic Uh, manufacturing essentially collapsed there were lots of people being laid off work of course there was the 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 infamous um miners strike as well in the in the the mid 1980s um and one of the consequences of that um, perversely was that there was a there was a boom in consumer electronics but because people were were being laid off work um, many were using their severance money um, either to buy consumer electronics equipment um, or, or or at least rent rent it um, or some people were were investing that money back into the consumer electronics industry by opening up video rental stores so um it 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 it's it's a it's a tale of two it's a coin of two sides really because on the one hand you've got um economic devastation running throughout the 1980s but you've also got this growth industry the video business that is on the one hand catering to uh, the needs of those who are unemployed and maybe spending a lot of time in the house but it's also giving people who were recently out of work an opportunity to get back into work, such was the demand for VHS and, and, and Betamax cassettes. So the Betamax were also available in Britain at the time. <clears throat> for sure. So uh, the the Betamax was was was, was launched um, at the same time. So both formats were, were launched earlier in the US, uh, but uh, Betamax and VHS were launched in the same year in Britain in in nineteen seventy eight. And um, there was another format as well, uh, Video 2000, which was a, a European format um, that that was launched in Britain around about the same time, or maybe a couple of years later. But that just didn't that just didn't quite take off. Um, but in terms of the you know the format wars, um, I mean the same is true in in the UK as it is elsewhere in, in the world. Everybody just gra- gravitated towards VHS, and that became the the dominant format for sure. But not all the content available to to British rentals was American made, right? Where where did the distributors, the British distributors, find the for- films in whichever format they chose? Um, well, they I mean that's that's a, that's a good question. Um, well, a lot of them were so so. Whereas there, there were many independent um, companies that that were operating that were sort of small small companies with limited resources they would still send representatives to the likes of the 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 American film market or or MyFed or the or the Cannes Film Festival or whatever and they would barter 
um, or rather broker deals with, with with American film distributors. But in the early days, um, because the this was such a new area, and nobody really understood how copyright applied to to, to video itself, um, a lot of the first distributors would would go to London. Walk down Wardour Street, where all the the British exhibitors were based, and they would essentially negotiate deals to you know take prints away, um, have them converted to to video masters, and they might you know exchange fees, maybe a thousand pounds or a couple of hundred pounds or, or or whatever, and just that's how they they got their first that's that's how they got their their first films, um, but also um, a lot of these companies that that were starting in the early nineteen eighties maybe had ties to education in some capacity. So they would put out the educational films that they already had rights to. I mean, the BBC, of course, had this massive back catalogue of material that it could funnel out. So um so there was already a bank of material available. Um but but even by you know by the same token, a lot of these companies eventually would make their way to the film festivals and and do things quote unquote properly. Mm-hmm. I found it interesting the, the parts where you discuss about the role of, of VHS tapes for immigrant communities in Britain and how there was a whole stream of content that came through that route. Maybe you can tell us more about that. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, the it's it's a really interesting phenomenon, this one. The um, And chiefly, I mean, video was hugely popular among um, people of the South Asian diaspora. Um, for numerous reasons. I mean, for, firstly, when video boomed in Britain and when the first companies started up, a lot of the films, a lot of the feature films that were available were chiefly Western films. And I mean, obviously, you know, films from the from the West rather than in the Western genre per se, although Westerns were popular. Um, and Britain's immigrant communities, um, chiefly those um, from South Asia, just weren't catered for there was essentially a, an entire film industry that was not represented on video in, in britain and what ended up happening was um south asian video sh- shop owners based in cities such as birmingham and and leicester and elsewhere would essentially find means of importing um hindi films or bollywood films um informally um, via bootleg cassettes, pirate cassettes, um, or they would dupe cassettes that were handled by legitimate distributors based in Bombay, for example. And and it's interesting because one of the main companies, one of the main formal video companies hand, handling um, Hindi cinema at the time, a company called Esquire Video, um, they did open offices in Britain in the early 1980s. I think in 1982... But of course, by this point, VHS had boomed already. You know, since the since the late nineteen seventies, and Esquire was really too late to the party to make a huge impact because so many of the films that Esquire was 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 trading in had already entered the UK via illegal means anyway, um, and the the demand for. Um, for for Asian films, for want of a better ex- expression, was so huge. Was so huge that in in the early days, um, shopkeepers 
found any means necessary to cater to a demographic that up until that point, the entertainment industry had not really addressed. Yeah. It's, it's very interesting. It's kind of channels through which content entered Britain that reflected the, the dynamics of immigration, social dynamics in, in Britain at the time, those specific to the country. Absolutely. And it's in what, what I found especially interesting is that, um, that that side of the market um, was never featured really in the trade press unless um, there were articles that were disparaging articles about piracy. So the the needs of um, non-white or non-British audiences um, weren't adequately addressed in the formal trade press at all. Um, and it really was, it did become an, an underground network, an underground supply chain, um, not for suspicious reasons, only because chiefly, you know, the main distributors for whatever reason, just weren't, weren't interested in, um, in, in handling that material. Um, probably because they just didn't under, understand that sector and they didn't bother to find out either. Yeah. Very interesting. So, so tell, tell us more about the, the distributors, the British distributors, because in, in the US video, really the technology and then the, the, the boom in, in rentals, really the, the, the discourse around them, the advertising, the marketing revolved around the idea of choice. Yes. I'm curious how this was inflected in Britain. How did distributors sell and promise? What was the promise of video for consumers in Britain? Yeah, I mean that's a that's a great question too. I mean it it was very similar. Um, the thing is, what we've got to remember is when video first boomed, nobody was equipped to deal with or to appraise um, the 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 tastes of specific demographics. Nobody knew who the core demographic demographics of video were. Nobody. It was like an unknown, a completely new new terrain so what happened was in the early days distributors were just putting out anything anything and everything you know from from feature films to uh to documentaries about fishing to documentaries about badminton cartoons um it was a real hodgepodge of different um of different genres and um different modes of of programming um so variety was at the forefront of the agenda of distributors from the outset, chiefly because they didn't know who the main demographics for video would be. Um, and it was sort of like a fail-safe means of trying to get all consumers on board with this new with this new technology. And again, this relates to the to the economic climate, you know. Um, the first British video distributor, a company called Indivision, when they put out their first video cassettes, it was a risk um, taken because the the owners of 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 Intervision, which was a at the time a, it was like a they would sell uh, video recordings of, of of disco dancing to nightclubs. That's what they used to do, um, and they one of their sort of wealthy nightclub owners um, said to them can you get any films on on video? Because I would quite like to, to watch feature films at home. 
And that person was supplied with something. And then through word of mouth, more and more people began asking Intervision to supply them with, with films. So they just took a punt on the market and launched with a, with a, with a series of titles just to see how, how it went for them. And of course, they were right to champion variety for sure from the outset, because ultimately that's what the video market became. It became very diverse and um, and multi-layered. And it wasn't just a case of, I think initially it was anticipated that it would be the wealthy, you know, the upper middle classes who would gravitate towards video chiefly. Um, but of course the opposite was true. It, it became a, a wholly democratized phenomenon um, of which the the main audience or the main consumer base for video technology was was in fact the working classes B- because of the the dire straits that the British economy was in at the time and the fact that those out of work quite simply had more time to consume video entertainment than than those who had full-time jobs did mm-hmm. yeah and and this brings us to the question of how the government reacted to this democratization of entertainment consumption, which was all of a sudden unfiltered by uh, by the the big government uh, uh, project of protecting the masses from nefarious influences, because video basically opened up the floodgates to all sorts of content. And, and in other countries in Europe, there was this sense of unease uh, the type of content that was now available for teenagers, for kids. Um, so how, how did the British government respond to um, Because, of course, the famous or infamous episode <laughs> that no discussion of the video age in Britain can avoid is the video Nazis episode. Yes, of, of course. I mean, the, the, the government lost their minds. <laughs> It was it was it, it was crazy. I mean the, the the thing. So I mean the famous the the thing that you mentioned there, the, the video nasties panic was was a response to the fact that um, video was this unknown quantity and and there wasn't any law governing what type of of content um, could be uh, could be put on video or rather there was some ambiguity surrounding what was acceptable in the eyes of the law and what was not acceptable. So for example, um, one of the questions that was asked, you know, is it, is it permissible to distribute hardcore pornography in Britain on VHS because video is this new technology? And there was always, that was always a, a, a gray area and many people circumvented that. But the, the, the fact of the matter is when video boomed in the early 1980s, Britain had just come out of a of a of a minor panic, a minor moral panic around the around the the, the slasher boom, the slasher movie boom of the late nineteen seventies, um, and there was lots of um, commentary in industry, trade press, and whatnot about you know the the cont- violence in contemporary movies and in what what is acceptable and and what is not acceptable, and when all of a sudden you had films of that ilk being released on video where allegedly children could easily access and access it and whatnot the the UK government pounced on that because they wanted to be perceived as well you know we see it now you know the the law and order 
party who was who were going to stamp out immorality <laughs> in whatever form it it came in and because generally speaking Britons didn't understand video because it was so new Th- Margaret Thatcher and you know aided by um um commentators and casemakers such as Mary Whitehouse and people within her government made the case that video nasties it wasn't going to be unemployment that ruined the country you know it was going to be video nasties or it wasn't going to be the you know the the, the stuff that was happening overseas um, that Thatcher was involved in or her relationship with Reagan or whatever that was going to bring trouble to the United Kingdom. It was going to be horror movies released onto video that was going to corrupt the minds of 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 young people. And of course, um, when you have a scapegoat as as juicy, as it were, as, as horror films, um, people tend to listen to that nonsense. And you know, it happens time and time again. You know, you get cycles of moral panics. It just so happened that it was horror movies in, in Britain in the 1980s that that the government really pointed their finger at. Uh, but it wasn't just the government, in fact. It was, you know, all the entire spectrum and um, the entire political spectrum um, took, took, took issue with, with the video nasties because even those people on the left who would, you know, tend to be more liberal or whatever, they too uh, were worried that they would come across bad in the eyes of the public, if they were seen to somehow endorse a film like I Spit in Your Grave or Cannibal Holocaust or The Driller Killer or whatever. Um, so it didn't be, it wasn't so much about freedom or, or democracy or the right to be an adult and watch whatever you want. It, it became a moral dilemma whereby uh, people, whether they were on the left or the right, just did not want to be seen to to be endorsing the corruption of the youth of, of, of the 1980s. And that, you know, ultimately span out of control. And, um, a lot of people got into trouble and went to prison for, uh, trading in what was at the time deemed obscene material. The majority of which now of course is widely and legally available anyway. So, so basically this culture war of sorts, although it was a war because you seem like, you seem to say that all parties agreed (laughs) that there was a, some nefarious threat. Well, Um, I mean, I think it's safe to say that there were definitely people who did not agree with it, but I think politically, you know, in the House of Commons across the piece, um, you know, all parties got swept away on this. There, there were lots of outspoken academics, like uh, people like Martin Barker, for example, like Julian Petley, uh, sociologists and journalists who, you know, saw the video nasties panic for what it was. Um, you know, a lot of fuss about nothing, essentially. Um, but outside of, of those pockets of resistance, um, in terms of the law and in terms of the people who con- who controlled legal processes um yeah it was un- unfortunately um people got swept away on on the current of of uh, of moral panic um and as a consequence um a new law was passed the, the video recordings act which meant that for at least 25 years britain had the most severe uh, film censorship and video censorship in the Western world, which is, which is amazing when you think about it. But it's, um, yeah. but that's what happened. So, so the Video Recordings Act of 1984 was actually enforced afterwards. 
It was enforced, yeah, it was, and it's still a thing now. So how was it enforced? How did it impact what distributors were allowed to do? And then how did they navigate the law? Because there's always the law and there's always human agency. <laughs> so, yeah, so well, that's more that. Well, I mean, the distributors, like one of, one of the myths that surrounds this period is that the Video Recordings Act made distributors go out of business. That's one of the sort of the myths that that's that's often recounted about about this period, and Thatcher is um, is routinely framed as the person who crippled the independent video industry and stuff. And I mean, I can't stand Margaret Thatcher, to be to be clear, but um, it's not quite as simple to say that the Video Recordings Act did that, um, because a lot of the distributors that were going out of business at the time were going out of business not because they were being targeted by the Video Recordings Act, but because you know, you know, by by 1983, all of the major companies, or at least the majority of them, were trading their wares now. Um, and there's just no way that a company like Intervision, a small company like Intervision, is going to be able to compete with, you know, Universal or Paramount or, or whoever who is releasing Raiders of the Lost Ark or or Flashdance or whatever. You know, even even something like The Evil Dead or Cannibal Holocaust or I Spit in Your Grave is not going to be able to compete with a with a Hollywood blockbuster of that nature. Um, so that's that's the main reason why many distributors went out of business. But who was really affected was it was the video stores, then the shopkeepers, because they were the ones who were being routinely prosecuted for trading in videos that were yet to be classified by the British Board of Film Censors um, under the Video Recordings Act as it as it became. And there was so much ambiguity surrounding, you know, at least in the in the early days before the act was was passed, which videos were obscene. So there would be a list produced by the Director of Public Prosecutions that would be circulated amongst the police. And then the police would go to video shops and identify the titles in question. But it was so often the case that titles would be added and then dropped and nobody knew what was going on. So it might be the case that a video shop owner would have, say, one title that was deemed um, too hot and it was deemed obscene or whatever, but they wouldn't have been told that there was an obscene title because they had not yet received the most recent version of the list of, of, of offensive titles that was ever-changing. So it was a mess, basically. And it was the independent video store owners that really felt uh, the brunt of that because they were at the mercy of the police and the directors of the, the director of public prosecutions being across this and communicating effectively, which they certainly did not do. So so under the, the, the label or umbrella of obscene was mostly horror films or porn or both? Well, it, it became horror actually squarely. Um, but anything, um, but anything that blended sex and violence um, was, you know, it was targeted. But it, it's still arbitrary. If you look at the final thirty-nine films that were banned, there are there's some real vanilla stuff on that list. You know, stuff that um, it's it, it's it's wholly unclear why why if you know, certain films are are included in the in in the banned list. I mean, if you look at the artwork for something like Cannibal Holocaust or I Spit in Your Grave, you can understand why a moral busybody would be offended by the material for sure, right? And you can sort of see why, if somebody's going to ban a film 
on the grounds that something's um, sexually violent, for for example, I Spit in Your Grave would be on that list. But there are other films that are just real sort of tame, like a film like Snuff, for example, which is a, just a, you know, for all intents and purposes, a, a dreadful exploitation film that has a, a really ineffective sequence at the end of it, which purports to be real, but which clearly is not. Um, they've clearly just included that on the list because of what it of what that film is set to symbolize um they clearly haven't watched it do you know what i'm saying so th- there are many films that could have been banned during that period that were not um because the whole process was it was about um grandstanding and about thatcher saying we are doing something to curb the spread of this violent material look at these horrible titles but you know once the video recordings out was passed i mean you know, there were still titles in circulation that um, that pr- probably should have made the list if there was any strict criteria, right? Yeah. So, so you know, I, I don't know if many of our listeners are familiar with some of the, the plots of this film, maybe Cannibal Holocaust. What was, was it like over-the-top violence, cannibalism, kind of graphic violence? Was the marketing for tape like this, the sleeves of the, the VHS tapes themselves are also over the top? Was the whole package taken into consideration? Well, yeah, films? basically. I mean, the, these were, the, the, the these films are targeted chiefly because of their marketing, right? But also, I mean, their titles, I mean, you know, obviously um, the word Holocaust, of course, evokes all, all sorts of, you know, egregious acts. Um, and I think if you slap cannibal in front of that, it's gonna it's gonna ruffle feathers, of course it is. Um, but there were other titles that were that were included on the list for a period and then dropped. So, for example, Samuel Fuller's um, war drama, The Big Red One, which is you know it's for all intents and purposes a a straight film, that was originally targeted because the police were worried that the Big Red One was some crude euphemism. I mean, if you can believe that. Um, and the same is true for the Dolly Parton film, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. Um, that was targeted initially because the word whorehouse was in the title and and it was assumed that it was going to be some sort of, a, a you know, peddling, peddling filth to minors. So it really was, it really was crazy. But in terms of the justification that the police, the directors of uh, the director of public prosecutions, Thatcher, Mary Whitehouse, etc. Um, they would routinely describe the contents of these films. So in the case of Cannibal Holocaust, they would say, in this film, you see acts of cannibalism. And of course, people would recoil in horror. And I mean, you know, Cannibal Holocaust is a nasty film. I mean, there's no two ways about it. Um, but it, it sort of didn't matter what the film was because um, they would make the most vanilla horror fair sound really unpleasant anyway. And they were in fact caught out once when somebody in court described the plot of Shakespeare's Titus Andronicus, but didn't explain at first or indicate that that's the plot that they were describing. So they would talk about humans being baked into pies and everybody would be... (gasps) you know, shocking and recoiling in horror. And then the punchline, of course, was, well, that's actually a play by England's most revered playwright, <laughs> not a video nasty. Uh, it is so funny, but it, it, just, it, it, it exposes the, the lunacy of the whole thing and just how it was never about horror videos. 
it was never about protecting anyone. It was just about scoring political points. That's all it was ever about. And it was weaponizing um, popular entertainment, um, such as horror cinema, to do that. So, so was there ever anxiety that all this content came mostly from the U.S.? Um, because in other in other national context, there was this fear that the the video was also bringing about a tide of Americanization that would alter the culture. Was this ever a thing in Britain? It certainly was. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, Brits were really worried about um, America in many ways. You know, Britain's always had this sort of like strange sort of lo- love hate relationship with the states i mean i know we're, we're we're a special friend and and all the rest of it with the u.s but um i mean that was true of the video nasties for sure my, in fact my colleague kate egan has written a really good book on the video nasty specifically and she charts the discourse of americanization in that period uh, very lucidly what i do in rewind replay is examine that discourse in relation to video stores in the late 1980s when when blockbuster was on the cusp of of dominating the market and in the threat that blockbuster posed to independent british businesses and when blockbuster was first launched in the uk when the first store was open there were you know a handful of protests um with independent shop owners bearing placards that stated rent british um, because you know, essentially, they were worried about what we now what we now describe describe as McDonaldization, right? Um, and they were worried that that would happen um, to the vi- to the video market. And of course, it did happen, but it was a British company, Ritz, that did it. It wasn't Blockbuster at first, <laughs> but yes, for sure, Americanization was was definitely feared in in the UK. So, so tell us actually more about the arc of, of business and video stores. I mean, you start by explaining how this is originally was people out of work who saw a business opportunity. How did how did the, the video store market and business evolve as an industry from mom and pop stores to Ritz and then Blockbusters? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's true. I mean, the the, the, the mom and pop stores are, I guess, we'd call them mum and dad stores, I suppose, um, in the UK. Well, I guess that, that actually is not a term that that that, that we use strangely. That's very much an, Ameri- an Americanism, I think. Um, but, but yeah, so we had sort of inexperienced people entering the business for the first time in the late 70s, early 1980s. But of course, you also had people from other businesses entering video who you know? So, say for example, if somebody worked in manufacturing, for example, and their business was closing, they could they they segued into video, so they would bring knowledge of a different area of business to this business. So they were they were experienced business people, just not necessarily in consumer electronics. As the nineteen eighties progressed, and more and more video shops were opening and more and more videos were being released onto the market. In around 1982, 1983, the market just reached breaking point. You know, it was super, the market was super saturated, both with with stores and also with, with product, that a good number of video distributors and a good number of video shops went out of business. And as you get into the mid to late 1980s, Companies who, for example, may have initially focused in distribution started to enter um, video, the video trade as retailers or 
as um, companies that were supplying retailers with product. And then you also had those companies who were initially distributors who left distribution and entered video retail. And the most famous example of that is, a com- is the company Intervision, which I mentioned earlier, who was the first video distributor, but which by 1986 had changed its name to City Vision and embarked on uh, one of the first national video chain stores, uh, 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 an, an operation called Ritz Video. Um, and what Ritz Video tried to do was essentially um, bring a sense of unity to the video experience in the same way that um, the likes of West Coast Video was doing in the US um, and for a period in the United Kingdom, but also which which Blockbuster would proceed to master. So Ritz was essentially trying to bring that sense of corporate gloss that tended to be associated with the United States to the British market to give that sort of sense of consistency that one gets from 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 chain stores, right? Um, so Ritz was the was the was was the first company to really make a, a success of that in Britain, uh, and it would eventually be bought out be bought out by Blockbuster in the in the early in the early nineteen nineties. So so it was this corporate gloss that somehow replaced the shady reputation of video stores. Basically. Or- Basically, because you've got to remember, by this point, the 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 independent stores uh, were were so frequently derided in the mainstream press for selling video nasties to kids or whatever that um, Ritz came along, and in the eyes of the government, in the eyes of consumer watchdogs, they brought a new respectability to video that had been absent from the industry. Um, for for a couple of years, and in 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 addition to that, around about the same time, video started to be become more affordable, and they were now available to buy on the high street in high street stores. So, in around nineteen eighty six, you have this this turning point where video be, be you know goes from being associated with shoddy exploitation films to now being a staple of the high street. And one where "quote unquote" legitimate companies now had now had a, an explicit interest in, so families could now go to the video store and not be worried about you know stumbling across a copy of *Cannibal Holocaust* or whatever. Um, they could go and you know be guaranteed to rent a mainstream Hollywood blockbuster from the likes of Ritz because, and, and, and indeed as Blockbuster was doing, Ritz handled multiple copies of the of the same film and they essentially priced out the independent stores from that because they had the capital to do so okay so so ritz killed the independent stores and then blockbusters killed ritz and then netflix killed everybody well blockbuster yeah so blockbuster bought ritz and and i would say that in fact blockbuster owes as a as an international company blockbuster owes its its status owes its legacy to ritz because um, overnight, Blockbuster, when, when Blockbuster acquired Ritz, and I, I want to say 1992, um, it, in doing so, it acquired almost 1,000 video rental outlets, which was at the time the biggest acquisition Blockbuster had ever made. Um, and as, as a consequence, allowed Blockbuster to 
to dominate a very buoyant video market, the British video market, um, and and reshape it in its own image, building on a foundation that 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 Ritz that Ritz had laid in the in the in the in the late eighties and and early nineties. So I think I said in the book that Blockbuster, you know, as much as it's regarded as this U.S. behemoth, um, it really owes its success. I would say. Um, to this British company, Ritz, um, because it allowed to become this sort of global powerhouse overnight when it when it purchased it. So where is the video culture now in Britain? Do you think there's any nostalgia for this medium coming back now that we're all oversaturated with streaming content and data harvesting? Well, it's funny because I, I read uh, about two days ago, there was an article uh, published online saying that Blockbuster... Not in the, not in Britain, but in the U.S., Blockbuster was opening some new stores to try and recapture the sense of nostalgia. And then, when you read to the end of the article, it's basically a prank, <laughs> and they're not doing that. And I was really excited for a moment because I was thinking, "Oh, really? Do you think this is this is this where it's going?" Um, but no, I do think to, to well to answer your question, yes, there certainly is nostalgia for sure for for all of this, and we see it across popular culture. In the U.K., there are about four or five um, bricks and mortar. Uh, video stores in operation that rent DVDs. Um, some of them have been around a long time. Some of them are um, exist now, chiefly to sort of recapture a nostalgia for the 1980s and chiefly 1980s cult cinema, right? So when you go into these stores, like um, a friend of mine, uh, Rob Lane, who runs his own podcast, has got a store called Straight to Video, um, which is very much, um, you know, draped in, the the neon eighties aesthetic, right? Um, and it's all chiefly about 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 cult movies, and what the eighties symbolizes for people of a for people of a certain age. Whether we see that spill over once again into um, into a more mainstream appreciation for for tangible video related media remains to be seen. I mean, I can't see it personally. Because I think unlike vinyl, um, there really isn't a, a sonic or uh, visual advantage to tangible media when you can stream 4K stuff now online. But, you know, I don't want to, you know, <laughs> I don't want to predict the future because I'm usually wrong about this stuff, right? <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and to our listeners. It's been a pleasure um and best of luck in your future endeavors well thank you so much again for the chat i really do love talking about this stuff and uh, for everybody listening i really do appreciate it so thanks again it's it's, it, it truly is appreciated thank you